Great to be with you all uh, this Sunday morning. We're going to continue our study in the book of Acts uh, again today, and uh, this week we'll be uh, in chapter 19, as Tom read for us in a passage or a message that I'm calling uh, Rebels Without a Cause from Acts chapter 19, verses uh, 21 through uh, 41. So uh, we're going to dig in today, but first let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your amazing word, and Lord, we pray that uh, you will teach us this morning that we might learn what you have for us today. Uh, Holy Spirit, come and guide our hearts. Uh, Lord, uh, will you bless the reading and the study of your word today. In Jesus' name we ask it. Uh, Amen. Well, uh, many of you may remember uh, the Boston Marathon bombing, which happened uh, only a few years ago now. It was April 15th, uh, 2013, and uh, three people were killed and several hundred others were injured, including at least 16 people that lost uh, limbs, arms, and legs uh, in that Uh, event. And uh, I remember the first hockey game that the Boston Bruins played uh, after that bombing. It was just two days later on April 17th, and uh, the emotions in the building uh, were so raw. Uh, And as the the man got up to sing uh, the national anthem, he basically sang like the first half a line and then let his voice just kind of fade. And then there were 18,000 people uh, in that arena uh, singing the national anthem a cappella, and it was so moving, it was so emotional uh, as these people uh, who loved their country and loved their city uh, sang the national anthem. Uh, And I don't think there was a dry eye in the entire place. And after the national anthem uh, was completed, they all started this USA, USA chant uh, that lasted for quite a while. It was really an, an emotional experience, and I still... I get goosebumps when I look at that video. Uh, You may remember the same thing happened after 9-11, the first uh, baseball games back at Mets uh, Chase Stadium or City Field, I guess it was at that point, and Yankee Stadium. Not a dry eye in the place as they chanted USA over and over again. And uh, even for a diehard Mets fan like myself, I was able to become a Yankees fan for maybe 10 minutes, but that was it. That was all I had in me. But we just become so patriotic, we become so emotional about things that are are very important to us, right? And uh, we get fired up about the defense of our country uh, and about its honor, and we'll fight to the death to protect it. And and we've seen that over the numerous wars in our history that we will certainly, uh, we're willing to die for our country to protect its honor. Uh, We're naturally patriotic. We stand up for our country. We stand up for what we believe in. And as we come to this passage today, we see that the same emotions existed in Ephesus at the time, right? The motivations were somewhat different, uh, but these people loved their goddess, they loved their city, uh, and they were very patriotic towards it. Uh, Paul had been having great success in his ministry in Ephesus for Jesus up to this point in time, uh, but that success was really becoming a threat to the livelihood of people who dealt in uh, 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 images and and trinkets, about Diana and her temple. And so uh, we learn today about a man named Demetrius, and he was kind of the leader of this guild of artisans who was uh, producing these trinkets and statues and uh, various other things, images that bore the image of Diana or uh, the, uh, the temple. And he uh, understood that Paul's continued success in his ministry was like a death knell to their industry. And so uh, he appealed to, their, to, to the people's sense of civic pride uh, and their uh, loyalty to their goddess Diana. 
Uh, and when the loyal Ephesians heard or, or believed that their goddess Diana or her temple uh, were being defamed by uh, an outsider, well, they rose up uh, and they were not going to have any of that. They were going to do what they could to squash that rebellion and to defend the honor of their goddess uh, and her temple. But before we get to that, there's a little transitional uh, section in the first couple verses of this passage about Paul making future plans for his ministry. You know that Paul was certainly no stranger to hostility, and we've seen that over and over again in Acts. Whenever he was having success in a particular city or in a particular ministry, it wasn't very long before people rose up and chased him out of that city. And so you can imagine Paul, having been in Ephesus for quite some time now, uh, thinking, I wonder how much longer I have here before I'm going to be chased from here like I've been chased from other cities in the past. And so he's making plans uh, as, as we come to the beginning of this passage about what he's going to do uh, in the future. So uh, first we're going to look at Paul's future plans from verses 21 and 22, and then we'll look at his present trouble from the rest of the passage, verses 23 uh, through 41. Uh, so Paul's future plans. Uh, after Paul's ministry in the Ephesian synagogue, that was about three months, and then after two years of teaching in the school of Tyrannus, uh, the text says that Paul purposed in his spirit, or in the spirit, excuse me, to go to Jerusalem uh, after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, and uh, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So we have Paul making uh, these future plans, and, and what we see in that verse there is really an outline uh, for the rest of the book and about how uh, Paul does go about his ministry. Uh, but before we get to that part, I want to talk about Paul purposing in the Spirit, and we wonder uh, what that means. The, the text is kind of intentionally vague. Is, is it Paul's Spirit, or is it the Holy Spirit uh, who's guiding uh, these thoughts of Paul? And I think it's kind of a divine ambiguity uh, that, that Luke uses here to show that it's Paul's Spirit and the Holy Spirit, both working in harmony uh, to do the Lord's will. They both wanted the same thing. Now, as we think about that verse 21, I want us to look at the map and see just exactly what it was that Paul was planning. Uh, Paul is in Ephesus, which is on the west coast here of Asia Minor. He wanted to go to Macedonia, Achaia, Corinth, then go back to Jerusalem, and then he wanted to go to Spain, and then, he, or I'm sorry, to Rome up here, and then he wanted to go to Spain, which is Pictured over here, if the map was big enough. It's a long, long way that Paul was traveling to go, thousands of miles in opposite directions. You know, when, when I go out to run a few errands, I, I might be going to Kroger, and then I might pick up a prescription along the way and maybe drop some clothes off at the dry cleaner. All stuff like within a square mile of each other, right? Paul is going thousands of miles in various directions to do this ministry uh, that God had called him to do. And the purpose of that ministry and that journey was to take the gospel to places that it had never been before and to strengthen those who had already heard the gospel. And so this gospel message, it's a message of hope. Uh, it tells us that we don't have to live in fear. It tells us that Jesus loves us, Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And, and it tells us that the that Jesus, the, uh, through his Holy Spirit, lives in us, and he gives us hope, and, and he helps us every day of our lives. And that's such a powerful message, and it's just as true now as it was then. And Paul wanted everybody to hear this message, and so he was willing to travel these thousands of miles so that the whole world uh, could hear it. And so to prepare for this trip to Macedonia, uh, he sent Timothy and Erastus uh, there ahead of him. Uh, meanwhile, it says that Paul remained in Ephesus for a while. 
Uh, he had been in Ephesus for at least two years and three months up to this point. We're, we're told specifically that he had been in the synagogue for three months. Then we're told that he was in the school of Tyrannus for two years, and then maybe some time elapsed between then and this episode. Uh, but Paul wrote 1 Corinthians during his time in Ephesus, and he sent that letter with Timothy and Erastus uh, when they went into Macedonia, and they would deliver that letter to the Corinthians. But he said in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, verse 9, he said, A great door has been opened to me for ministry here, but there are many adversaries. And, and Paul was going to encounter a whole lot more adversaries in this next episode that we'll see uh, in Ephesus. Well, it's good for us to make plans, and, and we should make plans. Uh, and we want our plans to be in accordance with the Lord's will. But we always have to be ready to, to adapt or to change our plans, to get those plans in accordance with the Lord's will when he desires to move us in a different direction. Uh, you all know Proverbs 16:9. the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And from James chapter uh, three, or 4, verses 13 to 15, come now, uh, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know uh, what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will also do this or do that. So we should never etch our plans in stone. Uh, we should certainly be zealous for the Lord in all things, and we should uh, diligently seek his will, but we have to hold loosely onto our plans. Our plans often seem very good to us, but God may have better plans, and his plans might not even conflict with ours, but they still might be bigger and grander than we could ever imagine. I remember just a few chapters ago, uh, that Paul had wanted to go into Asia, and yet the Holy Spirit blocked his path from going to Asia. Uh, certainly, the Holy Spirit wanted Paul to evangelize, and Paul wanted to evangelize, but God's vision was so much bigger than Paul's vision. Uh, God wanted Paul to go first to Macedonia, and, and to Philippi, and to Achaia, and Corinth, and Greece, and all these places, and then go to Ephesus. Uh, so uh, Paul had a big vision, but he also had to be adaptable uh, so that he could change and, and do what God would have him to do uh, and conform with the Lord's will for, for the Lord's greater purposes. Now, I'm sure many of you have had uh, plans that you thought were certainly God-glorifying and God-honoring, and certainly he will uh, be in line with our plans. And, and then our plans go completely awry, and we wonder, uh, what has happened? Well, it happens all the time because we are fallible human beings, and we, have, we make fallible plans. Uh, so what we have to do is to be willing to kind of drive the car, uh, but yet let God steer the wheel, right? We want him to be able to steer the wheel, and that requires flexibility, adaptability, and patience on our part. And when we plan something, and it doesn't go like according to the way uh, we would uh, intend for it to go, uh, we may be wondering, like, why isn't God getting on board with our plans? And that is the wrong question. We should be asking ourselves, well, what have we done? Maybe we're not in line with God's plans. And so we should ask ourselves, how do we go about getting in line uh, with God's plans? Uh, God gave Paul this big vision, but there has to be flexibility. And so if things are not going your way uh, at the particular moment, uh, if you're in a dark place because you don't understand maybe what God is doing in your life, uh, we all need to learn the lesson to be flexible and adaptable and to be patient. We need to learn to trust God because his plans 
are bigger and better uh, than our plans. Well, as to Paul's plans, as we continue to journey uh, through the book of Acts, we're going to see that, in fact, Paul did go to Macedonia. He did go to Achaia. He did go to Corinth, just like he planned in verse 21. And he even got back to Jerusalem. And from there, God changed the plan. Uh, rather than going to Rome on his own terms as he had planned, he actually went to Rome as a prisoner. And he didn't want to go to Rome as a prisoner, but God certainly had bigger plans than Paul had. And, and God was, uh, through Paul, able to reach many more people uh, with Paul as a prisoner than he was as a free man. Uh, in Rome, when he got there as a prisoner, he wrote Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon uh, while he was a prisoner in Rome. And, and thousands were converted by those letters in Paul's day, and millions have been converted since. So, so many more people were reached because of that imprisonment. And eventually he was released from that imprisonment, and he may have even reached Spain. We don't know whether he did get that far, but he might have, just like he had hoped. But Paul's ministry that's recorded in First and Second Timothy and in Titus all happened after he was released from that Roman imprisonment. And so, uh, we have to not be frustrated when our plans don't work exactly as we drew them up. Paul certainly didn't plan to land in a Roman prison, but that's where he landed, and he did great ministry from there. So what we might perceive as failure may simply be nothing more than God turning the wheel ever so slightly so that we are in conformance with his will and we do it his way. So be flexible, be adaptable, be patient. Let God turn the wheel. Well, Paul was planning his future, but first he was going to have to deal with some present trouble. So let's look at this present trouble. Uh, Paul's ministry in Ephesus uh, was having a significant impact. And when there's universal repentance, when 5,000, uh, I'm sorry, 50,000 days worth of uh, wages from books are being burned, uh, and when others who witness this are being converted uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ in great numbers, and, and when the word of the Lord is growing and prevailing, uh, you have a successful ministry on your hands, and, and that's what Paul had. And that's what he meant when he wrote that a great door of ministry has been opened here for me in Ephesus. Successful ministry changes the society where that ministry is done, but not everybody is going to be happy uh, with the change in the culture that is happening, especially when it is going to hit them uh, in their wallets. And so we're going to see this instigation of a riot uh, at the hands of this man named Demetrius. Uh, in Ephesus, there was a silversmith there. His name is Demetrius. And he's, uh, like I said, the, the leader of this local guild of artisans who's producing these uh, trinkets uh, that promote uh, Diana and her temple. And they're selling these things and they're making a whole lot of money from them. And uh, Demetrius saw the impact that Paul's ministry was having on business. Uh, and he saw that, that their business was tanking as a result. And so in verse 25, he gathers these local artisans together uh, among them. And he says, uh, men, you know that our prosperity uh, depends upon this business. And that's the real reason why Demetrius was upset. He wasn't defending the honor of Diana or the honor of the temple. Uh, he was defending his bank account. And so when the gospel is preached, that Jesus Christ is Lord and that there is salvation through none other but him, and when it is proclaimed that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, and, and when people believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they reject idol worship, well, who's going to buy all these trinkets of Diana, the false goddess, and the temple uh, where she's worshipped? 
Uh, nobody's going to do that, right? They become obsolete. Uh, my first cell phone was like this gigantic hunk of plastic, right? You guys probably had them all when the first cell phone came out. It weighed about 10 pounds and didn't even fit in your pocket. And then I upgraded to the Captain Kirk flip phone. That was a big upgrade, and I was excited to get that. Uh, and then the BlackBerry came out, and I thought, wow, this is about as good as it ever gets, right? And then the iPhone came out, and that was the end of the BlackBerry. Uh, and those, those phones just became obsolete. And now, uh, who knows what's next after the iPhone? But uh, what we see is that when something is new and better, it makes the old obsolete and worthless. And uh, Demetrius knew that if, if Paul's Jesus dethroned Diana, well, their business was sunk. That was the end of them. In Ephesus, uh, this worship of Diana was a year-round kind of thing. But in the spring, there was this one particular week that was specifically and specially dedicated uh, to, uh, to Diana. And that week was called Artemision, uh, after the Greek word Artemis, the name for, for Diana. And the highlight of the week was this solemn processional where uh, they would take this image of Diana and they would walk around, parade it through the streets, and there would be uh, ritual dancing and plays and things that happened as they... they paid particular attention to Diana uh, during that week. And uh, Diana shrines have been found in like 33 other cities, I believe it is. Uh, but this, uh, this Ephesus is where it really happened the most because the temple was there. And so it's not difficult to, to think that during this week called Artemision, uh, this, this area would be particularly crowded and filled with people as people came from all over to worship Diana on this particular week. Now, we don't necessarily know that, that this event that we're talking about today happened during the week of Artemision, but given the huge amount of people who were there uh, and the hostility and, and the level of loyalty to the goddess, it is certainly possible that this uh, event happened during uh, the week of Artemision, especially considering the size of the mob and its response. Well, Demetrius uh, incited the others by appealing not only to their wallets, but then he cloaked it in, in religious uh, piety and, and also in patriotism. He played on their fear of economic disaster and then their religious fervor and even their zeal for their temple and their goddess and for the city's prestige. And that's the brilliance of Demetrius' speech, how he incites these people. Uh, verse 26, he says, uh, that the, these people are saying that, that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And then verse 27, he was concerned that their trade would fall into disrepute. Uh, they were in danger, these artisans, of, of being publicly shamed, because if you're selling things uh, that are, have been discredited, you'd be seen as a dishonorable people. And that was a big deal in an honor-shame culture. You wouldn't want to be publicly shamed like that. But beyond that, their temple would lose its prestige, and then their goddess would lose their divine majesty. Now, rioting over money kind of seems like a crude thing, right? But, but when we riot and, and get upset about uh, Diana and, and her temple, well, that's a very, very noble thing to, to rally around. And so this crowd really got behind uh, the idea of rallying uh, behind uh, Diana and her goddess. Uh, he's their, she's their goddess, and, and this temple is their temple, and they're not going to let some stranger from Tarsus from out of town come and tell them that their gods are no gods or that their temple is, is worthless, a worthless shrine. And so they all rise up in anger, and they're looking to take on uh, Paul and his message at this point. And, and these men were just caught up in their zealousness for Diana and caught up in their zealousness for the temple. And behind the scenes, Demetrius' plan is going just as 
according to, to what he had thought, right? You can almost imagine Demetrius going like this and, and saying, oh yes, my plan is working out just fine as these people have all risen up to defend uh, the uh, livelihood or, the, the, or Diana and the temple and meanwhile uh, protecting his own business at the same time. You know, if we were to take a survey of Luke and Acts, uh, we would certainly notice that Luke has a lot to say about the issue of greed. Uh, if you go back and look at uh, Luke chapter 16, for example, you'd find the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And Lazarus was very wealthy, but he would not even allow, or I'm sorry, rich, uh, the rich man uh, would not even allow scraps from his table to be fed to Lazarus, who was outside, uh, full of sores and poor. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 17 to 20 is the recounting of Judas and his uh, betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is the sad tale of Ananias and Sapphira who uh, held back some of the proceeds of the sale of a portion of land uh, and then lied to the Holy Spirit about it and were struck dead uh, at the site. And then in chapter 8 of Acts, we see Simon Magus, who uh, is trying to buy uh, the miracles that Peter did, the power to do those miracles. And so uh, he was very, uh, he was struck down by Peter or rebuked by Peter for doing that. Luke was very sensitive about people's greed uh, and about how people's love of money could get in the way uh, of their uh, walk with Jesus Christ. And you know, Jesus himself even said that no servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. And it's okay to be wealthy. It's not wealth that's the sin. It's being greedy and hoarding your money that's the sin. In the case of Demetrius and his friends, they had to choose between the truth of the gospel message that Paul was teaching and their bank accounts. And to their eternal destruction, uh, they chose their bank accounts. And, and Demetrius's masterful speech caused this riot. I don't know if you remember, if you've ever read Julius Caesar, but it reminds me of the play uh, Julius Caesar, Shakespeare's play, where uh, Brutus and Cassius decided that uh, Julius Caesar had to be killed. And so they did kill him. Uh, and then, of course, Julius Caesar was beloved, and so the people, the mob, rose up, and they wanted revenge against him, for, or against Brutus and Cassius, for what they had done. But they had an opportunity to speak to the mob and tell them why Julius Caesar had to be killed. And by the end of their speech, they, were, they had persuaded the crowd to their side, but then it was Mark Antony's turn to speak. And he said, with these famous words, he started the speech, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. And then he began this series of speeches that completely swayed the crowd that had been in favor of Brutus and Cassius. He swayed them against Brutus and Cassius, and they end up being killed uh, at the end of the play. And so what we see is the power of good oratory, the power of a speech uh, combined with a mob that's already bent on violence and the power that that has. Well, with the flame now ignited by Demetrius in Ephesus, uh, the conflict was going to escalate. And so as we come to the second section, we see the escalation of this conflict. Uh, these people were filled with rage when they heard these things, and they started crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they all rushed into the theater. You know, nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd. And people were coming from all over the place, joining this mob, trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, in verse 29, they picked up uh, Paul's companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, along the way and ushered them into the theater. 
you know, this amphitheater is still there uh, today. This is what it looks like. If you go to Ephesus, you'll, you can see this thing still exists. It supposedly seats about 25,000 people. And this, that very floor is where this event happens. And so uh, they have done some excavation there. They've also done excavation of this area called the Arcadian Way. And you can see that it's a road that leads from that amphitheater all the way out to the, to the sea, uh, the port of Ephesus. And so I just want you to think about uh, this image, uh, try and get this image in your head of that road uh, being filled with tons of clamoring people uh, wondering what's going on, uh, lots of noise, lots of, of loud voices, people wondering what are we all here, what are we riding about, what's going on? Uh, it would be complete bedlam. It's like uh, Times Square on New Year's Eve, right? That amount of people all rushing toward this theater, most of them not even knowing why uh, they're going there. And apparently it seems like Paul was not among them. Uh, for whatever reason, they couldn't find Paul. Uh, so we see that Paul is actually elsewhere as we look at verse 30. It says, when Paul, ha uh, when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, uh, his disciples would not let him go. And so Luke is now going to change the scene just for a couple of verses to Paul and wherever he happens to be, we're not told. But also some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to go into the theater. So these Asiarchs are actually, they're elected officials who are loyal to Rome. And yet here they are uh, looking out for Paul. Uh, so it's great for Paul that he's got friends in high places. Uh, these people knew of the attitude that existed in this mob. And they knew that if Paul went into that theater, uh, he was going to be torn limb from limb. There would be nothing left of him. And so uh, that's actually Paul's last appearance in this episode. From, from there, Luke is going to refocus the attention back into what's happening in the theater. And what's happening in the theater is mass confusion and mob rule. Uh, they don't even know why they're there, most of them. And so the Jews, they put forward this Alexander. Uh, they put him forward and apparently to make some kind of defense. Uh, and what he wants to say is that, look, you guys, don't, don't take it out on us. It's not us who are the cause of the problem. It's these Christians who are causing the trouble. And I'm sure to a pagan at this point in time, there was very little, if any, difference between a Christian and a Jew. Uh, all they knew was that they were not pagans and they certainly didn't sanction uh, the worship of Diana and their goddess. Uh, Christians and Jews are both monotheists who, who don't agree with the worship of Diana. So uh, he was completely ineffective. Uh, verse 34, they recognized that he was a Jew and they out, had an outcry. A great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Can you imagine that? Two hours? Uh, I've been to some events where there have been some long-standing ovations before, but two hours is, that's really something. Um, many of you may have even come here at like nine o'clock this morning, and it's, you know, it's a little bit past 11 o'clock now. Imagine from the moment that you got here, you started screaming at the top of your lungs, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, and you only start, stopped screaming that like 10 minutes ago. I think you'd all be like sound asleep by now from that. It's exhausting, uh, but such was their energy and their loyalty and their fervor for their God uh, and for, uh, for the temple. Well, it just goes to show their, that, that their fervor and their intense patriotism was, that was what was stoked by Demetrius. And this mob was certainly in a lather and uh, Alexander was totally unable to defuse the situation, but thankfully, uh, the town clerk was. So let's look at the resolution of this uh, situation. The town clerk would be the highest ranking official uh, in that city of Ephesus. And 
Uh, imagine you're standing up there on that platform that I showed you all alone to an arena full of perhaps 25,000 people, and you have to shout down this angry mob without even the benefit of a microphone, right? You're just standing there in an open-air theater trying to shout these guys down. And uh, I imagine like a, uh, a Clint Eastwood type or, or a John Wayne type from an old Western just kind of sauntering onto the stage and using all the authority of his office uh, to try and gain control over this situation. And so he gets up and says, uh, look, people, everyone here knows that, uh, that uh, uh, that the Ephesians uh, are, the, that, that this is the place where the temple is and that Diana is our goddess. And so since everybody knows this, what are you all here yelling about? You're making a commotion or for no apparent reason. Uh, and we know that she is the guardian of our temple and uh, that she is uh, the, uh, the uh, great Artemis and the, of the image which fell down from heaven. Isn't that interesting? Uh, most commentators think that, that there was a meteor that fell down from heaven and, and that either uh, they had shaped their, uh, their, their image of, of Artemis after this meteor that fell. Uh, and so uh, some meteor falls out of the sky and you make a goddess out of it. That's what you do when you're a pagan, right? When you don't know uh, the one true God. So the town clerk said, look, no one can deny these facts. We are the keeper of the temple. We are the keeper of the, uh, keeper of the goddess. This riot must end. And then he turned the tables on them. Uh, verse 37, he says, you've brought these men here who are neither robbers of the temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So what is he doing there? He's, he's kind of vindicated what they're doing. He doesn't find any cause for any charge against these guys. And then turns the table on Demetrius. He says, if Demetrius, if you have a complaint and the craftsman, if you have a complaint, well, we have lawful ways to handle these things. You go see a, the proconsul. You can, you can bring a complaint there. You can do it before lawful assembly, but you can't riot like this. And so uh, really what he's saying is that if there's anybody here who's breaking the law, it's not Gaius and Aristarchus and Paul, it's Demetrius and the Ephesians. And so isn't that interesting from, from a, a town official who says that? He's saying that they are rebels without a cause. And so uh, he shouts down this riot. And the result was uh, that if the riot continued to persist, verse 40, we're in danger of being in accused of a riot in connection with today's event because there's no real cause for it and we'll be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. Uh, Rome would have been in a position to come and take away whatever freedoms they had and they certainly didn't want that. So this, uh, this riot had to be dispersed and that's what he did. Uh, one guy able to dismiss that by uh, using his reason and the, and the authority of his office. You know, one of the main points of this particular passage and of Luke's overall purpose in writing uh, Acts to begin with is to show that Christianity is really no threat to Rome at all. Uh, when uh, when, when we, we've seen this in the past in Acts, like uh, when we think back to Acts chapter 13, uh, Paul appeared before the, the uh, Roman Sergius Paulus, and uh, Sergius Paulus summoned them and he said, I, I want you to preach the gospel to me. But then this man, Elimus, the magician, rose up and he tried to oppose Paul and Barnabas. Uh, but then God struck Elimus blind and Sergius Paulus became a believer. That's a Roman. And then in Acts chapter 18, Paul, uh, third, uh, yeah, 18, I'm sorry, uh, Paul ran into Gallio, 
of this Roman and the Jews were bringing charges against Paul and, and Gallio said, if this were a matter for you Jews, I would deal with it, but I'm not going to get involved in this dispute that you guys are having. And so Paul was allowed to continue to preach the gospel. The Romans did not uh, oppose him. And now here are these Asiarchs who are loyalists to Rome. They support Paul uh, and the town clerk dismisses them all without a negative word against Paul or against Christianity. And we're going to see it even again uh, in Acts chapter 26, when Herod Agrippa and Festus have this meeting, they say that Paul could have been set free if he had not appealed to Rome. Uh, Luke was emphasizing that Christianity is a peaceful religion and it was no threat to Rome. Unfortunately for Paul, though, uh, preaching in Ephesus had become a threat to him. Uh, in in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.32, he said that, uh, he fought among the wild beasts in Ephesus, and that's certainly uh, what he's talking about here in this incident that brought Paul's ministry in Ephesus to a close. Uh, Paul had planned in his spirit and with the Holy Spirit to do future ministry, and he was attuned to the Holy Spirit so that he would know when his time in Ephesus had come to an end, and that time was now. Uh, after three months in the synagogue, after two years in the school of Tyrannus, and following this incident, a total of about three years, as we're told uh, in other places in the Bible, it was time for Paul to move on. And so we'll track him and trace him into Macedonia uh, next week. But for this week, let's think about a couple of applications uh, to take with us from this passage. And the first one is this. Don't let your wallet hinder your walk. You know, these folks at Ephesus uh, rejected the truth to protect their wallets. That's what they were doing. And, and as Christians, our wallets can damage our witness too. I think about just a simple thing like being a, a generous tipper. Uh, what, a, what a big deal that can be in a restaurant. Uh, like if the waitress sees you praying before your meal and then you don't leave a tip or you leave like a few cents on the table, that really damages our witness as Christians. So uh, we have to give generously. The Lord can replenish. Uh, when I was working as a lawyer, there was always a, a tremendous temptation for me because I had to bill my time and we get paid by the hour, of course. And so there's always a temptation to write down more time than you actually spent on a task. After all, uh, who's going to know? Well, God would know and I will know. And my employees that work for me who know that I'm a Christian, they'll know. And so we always have to, we're always going to be put in a position where we are given uh, the choice whether we're going to protect our wallet or protect our witness. And we need to be careful with that, always allowing our, our uh, witness to prevail. We're always going to have opportunities to make decisions about what we're, we're going to do for money, uh, what we're going to do with money, uh, how much we're going to allow uh, Christianity and our walk with Christ to cost us. We want God to be the number one priority in our lives, and most of the time, his stiffest competition for that honor is our wallets, and so we have to be careful about that. Wherever possible, uh, choose to protect your witness over your wallet. Secondly, the more effective we are, the more we will be opposed. Our values as Christians are out of harmony with the world's values. Uh, I wanna give you a very small example this week uh, that a devotional that I wrote and emailed out to you called uh, Handling Disappointment. I posted that on the Nextdoor West Garland uh, webpage. And some people made some nice comments, uh, a couple of nice comments. But then I got an email from Nextdoor saying that uh, my post needed to be taken down because I'm not allowed to use Nextdoor to stand on a soapbox. And so I was, uh, I was rejoicing because I was counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of the Lord. <laughs> 
But that's what happens, right? When our worldview comes into conflict with, the, with the society's worldview, we're going to run into conflict uh, like that. Uh, Paul's ministry in Ephesus was culture changing. Uh, people were abandoning idols for the one true uh, Lord Jesus Christ. And, and whenever that happens, a successful ministry is always going to result in persecution. So if you're suffering some kind of persecution now, uh, congratulations, you're probably doing something right, walking with the Lord. And if you're not suffering persecution, uh, you probably will. And if you never have suffered persecution, well, then maybe it's time uh, for us to think about going outside of our comfort zone a little bit, uh, because the world will oppose us when we're doing his work. You know, as these folks in Ephesus found out, it's so easy to follow the mob, right? They all just jumped in. They didn't even know what they were protesting, but they, there was a crowd going somewhere, so they were going to follow that crowd. Uh, it's easy to follow the mob. There's safety and there's security in the mob, uh, it's hard to oppose the mob. It's hard to stand up against the mob. And that's what uh, God is asking us to do in this day and age where the mob is against us. The mob is against Christians. And so uh, he wants us to stand up and, and boldly proclaim our faith. He's not looking for secret service agents. He's not looking for undercover agents. He's looking for us to go out there, boldly proclaim our faith, and tell people that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, persecution is quite often a mark that we are doing God's work well. So I would just implore you today not to let your wallet uh, hinder your walk and, and to just recognize that we are going to be opposed and stand firm. Uh, Jesus Christ said, in this world you have, we will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this story uh, that shows us that opposition uh, can just start with a spark, and before you know it, you have a whole mob opposing you, and, and your life can be in danger in an instant, Lord. And uh, Christians across the globe uh, over the centuries have, have found this to be true, Lord, and we may find this to be true in our lifetime, in our country as well. So, Lord, I, I ask that you would give us the courage to stand boldly against the mob. Uh, Lord, the mob wants to shout us down and tell us that uh, either all roads lead to heaven or there is no such thing as as God and Jesus Christ, uh, Lord, we know the truth. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And we have a message that we need to proclaim to the world that doesn't want to hear it. Lord, give us the strength and the courage to do it boldly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.